Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Bradley W. Hart and Ron Drabkin, who have both been researching the life of Frederick Rutland. Frederick Rutland was a British war hero who was nicknamed Rutland from Jutland, and it is alleged that he may have been a spy for the Japanese intelligence services in the build-up to World War II. Stay tuned to find out more. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it in a few ways. First of all, please do leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help us gain more listeners as it raises the awareness of the podcast. I don't know if you know, but all podcast apps are algorithm-based, and the more interaction the show gets, the more listeners it attracts. You can also become a friend of the podcast through Patreon. For £3 a month, you can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. Also, you can join us on Twitter. You can directly interact with me by going to at Secrets and Spies. And lastly, you can watch my short spy film, The Dry Cleaner, which was my first attempt at original spy fiction. It's now available on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It comes in, I think, around about $2.99. So, without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Bradley and Ron, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Good morning. Could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? So we'll start with Bradley, who was on our show God, a good couple of years ago now, talking about Hitler's American friends. I know it's great to be back, Chris. Uh, you know, always enjoy being on the podcast and got a lot of great listener feedback, actually, after the last episode. So hoping to get some uh, from this one as well. But yes, I'm an associate professor at California State University, Fresno. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book entitled Hitler's American Friends, uh, sort of looking at the American fascist movement in the 1930s. Um, since then, I've done a, a ton of speaking about that book, actually all over the, the country and, and to some extent the world, as much as the pandemic has allowed. So it's a really fantastic experience. Uh, and, and Ron was actually one of my readers on that book who reached out with some, some research ideas. And, and since then, we've been collaborating on a slightly different form of research, but I think something uh, equally fascinating and I would say even more overlooked in the existing history. So it's been a, it's been a great project. Excellent. Ron, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? So absolutely. Uh, I'm a Silicon Valley guy by trade, entrepreneurship, and you know, one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, I got involved in the history as an amateur uh, simply because um, my family members were all in intelligence. My father was in intelligence oh, and uh, my grandfather. And when I was looking into that, um, I contacted Bradley with some uh, historical artifacts I found. And mm-hmm. um and that's where it all started. Oh, fantastic. Are you able to tell us a little bit about those artifacts and that story? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So my father was a U.S. Um, counterintelligence chasing the um, basically communists through California. Mm. And I found uh, when he passed away, I found uh, any number of um, memorabilia, counterintelligence manuals, um, found some uh, Nazi related stuff. It, it's the kind of things you, you really get surprised finding in your uh, father's mm. office. 
Yeah. Oh, wow. And did you did you know about his background before finding those things? Uh, the way it was done, not as much. Well, I, well, he mentioned that he was in intelligence, but um, he never talked about the actual missions. Mm. He would talk about the training classes or the the you know the historical background or yeah. meeting Kerensky, you know that kind of thing, but never about the actual missions. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't a complete shock then, it wasn't. You suddenly find out your dad's James Bond or something. Right. <laughs> Only a minor one. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, you both have been researching Japanese naval intelligence sort of during the 1920s through to World War Two, and in particular a British World War One naval hero called Frederick Rutland or otherwise known as Rutland from Jutland and he became a, an asset for Japanese intelligence so can you talk to us a little bit about Frederick Rutland and kind of give us an overview of his life? Yeah so uh, he was apparently extremely famous in uh, after the Battle of Jutland um, he was an enlisted man a son of a day laborer who sort of passed the test to become an officer in the uh, British uh, Navy, which apparently was quite challenging to do. Very talented guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, at Jutland, he did uh, what was never had never been done before, meaning he flew a plane off of a ship in battle. Mm. It was a seaplane, winched overboard, flew over the German fleet under fire, and then returned to the ship. So it was basically the first ship-based uh, naval aviation. Yeah. Did they used to use that for spotting before radar? Yes, that's right. Yeah, because I think quite a few warships had these little planes that were attached to them that they could sort of fire off a catapult, I think. Yeah, it seemed rather terrifying to be... Uh, there's a picture of him flying off the turret of the HMS Repulse, yeah. which is on a 20-foot platform piece of wood. <laughs> uh, must have been absolutely terrifying. I bet. And what happened to him sort of after World War One? Uh, well, when the Royal... Um, uh, Air Force was created. Uh, he moved from the, the Navy to the Royal Air Force. And as the war was winding up, he um, he didn't do so well in the promotion sweepstakes mm. after, uh, after the war. I think he was a little, um, uh, apparently a little bit of a difficult personality. And um, he had a couple other issues. He was having affairs with fellow officers' wives, you know, things that were not Con, uh, conducive to being promoted in the new post-World War I Royal Air Force. Yeah. As a famous fellow, he was approached by an attache from the uh, Japanese embassy in London uh, to discuss about their new naval plans, and he was offered a job. MI5 was watching the entire time. Having broken the Japanese codes, they knew what was going on. But um, there was a lot of other Britishers in, uh, in Japan at the time. There was a fellow named Lord Semple, who later became uh, an asset uh, a lot of the folks from the Sopwith Company went over to Japan mm -hmm. to help the uh, yeah. Mitsubishi company there. Yeah. He spent four years in Japan helping the Navy and um, uh, and the Mitsubishi Company with their carrier aviation. And this was all before World War II that point, wasn't it? Yes, this was all still the 1920s. And what happened to him in the sort of 30s? So he moved to the US, didn't he? And then this is where his being associated with Japan was quite important. Yeah, exactly. After he, uh, around 1928, he went back to Britain uh, working for his brother-in-law. And apparently he was bored to tears after, you know, working in sales for an aeronautic company just didn't do it for him. And uh, his old friends from uh, Japan uh, talked to him again and said, well, we like you to work for us again. And he, um, you know, being both bored and, and uh, looking for more cash, uh, jumped on the uh, on the opportunity. And he had said, yeah, well, I, I'm here in London. I'm happy to uh, do espionage for them. And they said to him, you know, we really need you in Los Angeles. And uh, he hadn't been there before. But um, uh, in talking about it, it was, it was quite a good opportunity for both him and Japan, uh, partly because uh, well, California had the American fleet and uh, had Hollywood, had aircraft production. And from his perspective, um, he uh, it wasn't really illegal for him to go over, be you know, uh, as a British citizen, 
in the U.S. when the Britain and the U.S. were not allied. There was nothing really illegal about going around, talking to people, taking some pictures. Mm, mm. Yeah, there was quite a lot of free exchange of sort of technology back then, wasn't there? I think like um, I know in the U.K. we had uh, aircraft testing at Farnborough going on even up until you know World War Two started. Just about you had you know German aircraft flying there and all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah so that's quite interesting. So he kind of came to a bit of a you know his career. Um, as a sort of Japanese spy came to an abrupt halt, didn't it, in the sort of 1940s and ended up back in the UK, I believe. Yeah, around um, uh, in the middle of 1941, when uh, the US was waking up to the Japanese threat, both, you know, intelligence and otherwise, uh, the Japanese were uh, very um, ca- uh, incautious spies. They kind of left a trail everywhere they went. Uh, they all, uh, a bunch of them were all arrested. And then the question came, uh, what do we do with this fellow, Rutland? The FBI wanted to put him on trial. The, the From the British government perspective, um, this was profoundly embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bradley uh, is the expert on this thing. But uh, having an American, um, you know, uh, Britain's trying to get America to come into the war. And here's uh, one of the most famous war heroes helping uh, the Japanese. Yeah. Not too different from um, Lindbergh, I believe. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah, I think that, that that's all right. And and the the context we have to remember here is that Japan has a very different relationship with both the United States and Britain than than Germany mm. does in the interwar period. Uh, we often forget that Japan was actually a victor in the First World War. It had joined the Allies uh, and actually gets a seat at the Treaty Table of Versailles. Um, and part of the reason that relations begin to deteriorate is because in the nineteen twenties. The U.S. begins pursuing a policy of, of sort of forced naval disarmament, uh, where at the, in the Washington Naval Treaty, they actually set a quota of the number of battleships that countries are allowed to build. And Japan gets stuck with a very low quota for their, for their fleet in the Pacific. So this is seen as a major blow to Japanese honor and not the way that you would treat, a, treat an ally in that sense. And so after the mid-1920s, relations begin to, to fray. But officially... Uh, there, there are no hostilities between Britain and Japan, nor are there hostilities between the United States and Japan. And so, in the period where Rutland is working for for the Jap- for Japanese companies as well as the Japanese Navy, um, th- these are not necessarily an- antagonistic countries. And there's certainly a great deal of hope, uh, especially in Britain, actually, that Japan uh, might be brought back as an ally in the future. And, and the United States certainly sees Japan as an important uh, trading partner in this period. Uh, you know, as part of another project, I've been looking at. Um, U.S.-Japanese trade in this period. And incredibly, the U.S. is still shipping things like scrap metal to Japan up until almost the day of Pearl Harbor. Um, and we know, of course, that when Roosevelt orders the, the sort of termination of the oil shipments between the United States and Japan, that that's a major blow to uh, U.S.-Japanese relations. So, you know, there's, there's interesting um, sort of nuances to these international relationships in this period. Um, but, you know, there, there is also this undertone of, as, as Ron rightly said, of embarrassment. When, when Rutland is exposed, um, Britain certainly does not want an international incident here, uh, nor does the United States with Britain. And so I think there's very much this view of let's just make this problem go away, pretend it never happened. Let's not do anything that might uh, escalate relations between the U.S. and Britain or either of those countries and Japan, for that matter. And we know, in fact, that this is how the U.S. treats a number of Japanese agents they pick up in this period. They sort of quietly deport them. Um, send them away, make, make them persona non grata rather than actually putting them on trial in many cases because they, they don't want uh, the cause for war to be to, to essentially come out of one of these cases. 
Yeah, yeah, excellent. Ron, was there anything else you wanted to add before we move on from that question? Yeah, you know, as Bradley was saying, there's there's a there's several layers of nuance. You could see the slippery slope this fellow had. You know, first of all, the the you know the Japan and you know from from our point of view, well, we had World War II, and everyone knows Japan fought the U.S. and 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 U.K. and that was not a foregone conclusion, or didn't seem to be at the time. And then secondly, there was the whole the the laws have changed so much. Um, and what is you know what is a spy? <laughs> yeah. is, is a very vague point. And, um, you know, a Briton with a camera going down to the port of Los Angeles, taking uh, pictures of the ships there. Well, that that happens all the time, even today, mm. and uh, is not thought of as spying. So the, the nuance is, is, you know, quite deep here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's funny you should mention that there was a ship that docked in London recently, a Royal Naval ship, and I took some photos of it. And I, I don't know, I just felt guilty while I was taking these pictures with my zoom lens. I was like, should I be taking a picture of that you know, anti-missile system <laughs> and stuff like that? <laughs> so yeah, it is a slippery slope, isn't it? <laughs> um, so what was it that sort of drew you to this character and this kind of episode in history? Is there anything that kind of was the genesis of this research? It was, um, I mean, it's it's a fascinating, uh, you know, paradox, mm. I guess, is the, the thing that jumps out um, that, you know, that the Britain's most famous aviator from World War One would be working for the other side. Um, the other things that jumped out is he was living in a house in Hollywood uh, that mm. uh, if you look on the line today, that house is worth $11 million. You know, he had a pool, a butler, you know, two cars, his kids in private school. Yeah. And um, it wasn't entirely clear what the Japanese were getting for this. Um, although it did appear that uh, the cost of his salary was um, roughly 10x that of a Japanese admiral at the time. So it wasn't entirely clear what um, the Japanese had gotten out of him, but they certainly had very high expectations. You know, this was not yeah. – some low-level guy running around the docks trying to buy sailors, you know, beers. This is a, you know, very high-level asset. Yeah. What were the Japanese Navy trying to accomplish then by hiring British VIPs as assets in these pre-war years? And why would they, um, you know, send uh, Rutland to live in Hollywood in particular? Especially, as I think, San Diego is like a bigger naval port, isn't it? Yeah. Some of these things are still a little unclear. You read the Japanese mm. sources and they're slightly unclear. But, uh, you know, the U.S. Pacific Fleet was in uh, Long Beach, the port of Los Angeles, uh, until actually just before Pearl Harbor. Um, oh, okay, yeah. And um, the other thing was uh, Los Angeles had over half the aircraft production of the U.S. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so um, were they, because he was, he was operating on quite a few levels. I was going to actually ask you about sort of like what his sort of trade craft was. How was he, you know, what was his sort of mission per se and what, and how was he kind of going about kind of getting information for the Japanese? You know, he could operate at such a high level, mm. uh, you know, such an executive level that he has this $11 million house, uh, you know, today's value in, in Hollywood. He can invite some admirals over, some titans of industry. Talk about, you know, when I was in the Royal Air Force and we were flying planes off the of decks, we did this. What are you guys doing? Mm, and he could get mm. the source directly from the, um, you know, from the top of the military. So he was basically having parties, inviting sort of senior people over to sort of just to get that kind of uh, information because they saw him as a sort of trusted colleague, I suppose, and an experienced man himself. Yeah, it doesn't seem like very many people could even conceive he'd be working for the Japanese. And mm. in fact, what people originally thought when they thought saw him doing some suspicious things was he must be working for British intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> which is what you would assume, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's true. Bradley, is there anything you want to add to that? Well, I think the other nuance about the Los Angeles question is quite interesting because one of the things we discovered in writing this, and, and Ron can, mm. can correct my memory here, but the Japanese actually asked him at one point to move to San Francisco because, of mm. course, San Francisco is where the fleet is literally sailing out under the Golden Gate Bridge. And so with, with that prime position, you could actually count the number of destroyers entering the Pacific, for instance, at least from that port. And Rutland says no. He actually tells his Japanese handlers that he needs to stay based in in the Los Angeles area because that's the only way that he will maintain his levels of access to information. So you could read that a couple of ways, potentially. I mean, you could read that, that Rutland's enjoying a larger-than-life lifestyle in Hollywood um, and you know, very much enjoying this very large salary that he is receiving, uh, presumably tax-free. Um, but also you, you could read into that that he's perhaps right, that had he gone to San Francisco, he wouldn't have enjoyed that same level of, of cachet that he had built up over the course of years. Um, one of the other interesting things we found researching this was that Rutland did not conceal his activities to a large extent. He was covered in, in the Los Angeles newspapers. His wife invites reporters over to his home to cover going away parties before he goes to Japan, supposedly on business trips in the late 1930s. So, so the interesting thing for me is that this is a, a you know what we would call a spy who didn't seem to conceal his spying all that all mm. that greatly. I mean, certainly didn't necessarily broadcast what he was doing, but tells people that he's working for Japanese companies, broadcast that he's going to Japan, um, you know, and I think very much enjoys in some ways the air of mystery that he cultivates around himself. Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, there's the two layers of espionage that Japanese are doing. There's the very tactical kinds of things. You know, let's go steal some plans from this aircraft factory or let's Mm go... um, you know, go go monitor the fleet as we're sailing around. And this is at a, at a very, very executive level. And he wasn't just dealing with top-level people either, was he? He was, if I remember correctly from reading, he was dealing with people around the sort of docks themselves and things like that. Is that correct? Uh, he was, but I think he was doing that simply because, um, my, my, is my take on it, Bradley, is he was just bored, mm. right? The, the guy didn't sit still. He liked excitement. There wasn't a lot of value in him, you know, snooping around the docks. Anyone can take pictures uh, from the docks, really. Well, I think it might, might it it might, might also be to some extent that he needs something to show his the Japanese to continue this sort of gravy train, right? I mean, it's one thing to send reports that you've talked to an aircraft executive, and that might be more valuable intelligence, but sending some photos along with it sort of, I think, ups the ups the value potentially. And so I read mm-hmm. this. I mean, certainly we also looked at the American counterintelligence uh, work that was done in this period on on what the Japanese were up to. And there is some information that's contained in, in uh, the sort of intercepts that the U.S. Navy decodes in this period of information that probably came from Rutland, although they don't identify the source. So things like the number of aircraft being produced at these plants, uh, information that likely came from aircraft executives. So he's, he's feeding them valuable intelligence. But I think a, a lot of this game, to my read, is, is simply keeping the gravy train rolling. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, um, interesting question. So what do we think his motivation was and what kind of made him tick? It's a very interesting question, I think. Mm. Um, there, there's there's several layers. You know, first of all, um, I think we all know people like this. They just like being the center mm. of attention, um, are ambitious, like money, like being important. You know, th- this is, you know, at a very base level, nothing more complicated than that. And uh, But secondly, you know, a, a, an open question really is how – Angry was he at the UK for his perceived ill treatment? Mm, there was, mm. you know, class issues. Um, he wasn't treated in his mind well uh, on the aircraft carrier, the HMS Hermes, when he was there, um, and he just didn't feel sort of appreciated. And so, an, an interesting question would be, you know, he was kept in in jail in the UK uh, through most of the war. 
And the question was, you know, would he be in a, a present threat to British national security or not? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, he definitely was an angry man. The question is, would he have done anything with that? The other thing to note, as Ron just said, he is he is detained under 18B, uh, which we can certainly talk about more fascinating uh, period in British history, but, but also offers MI5 his own services when they take him back to London, offers to betray the Japanese um, and actually mm. writes letters to, I think it's a member of, a member of the House of Commons, isn't that right, Ron? Who, where he offers to to turn over all the information and names of Japanese agents that he that he has. Yeah, there was a fellow uh, Admiral Roger Keyes who was quite the ally of his, who uh, apparently is a you know prominent lord or something like that. He was uh, making a lot of waves to get Bretland freed, and even uh, a generation later, the second. Uh, mm. Lord Keys was also making claims of Rutland's innocence, even you know, even though the fellow had died fifteen years prior. Yeah. Well, he also did he not use the defence that he was somehow working for American naval intelligence as a sort of mask for his activities? Did you guys find anything to support that at all? We found a smoking gun on that um, in in files that the FBI had declassified just a few years ago. Yeah. yeah he was working for um, U.S. naval intelligence, uh, and that was part of his defense when he got sent back to Britain. He was like, well. I mean, not only did was it not illegal for me to be helping the Japanese, but as soon as I found out things were getting bad, I went and helped the Americans. And the only reason I didn't tell the British about this was because, well, I was in America. Mm. And what do you and and does that hold water with you guys? Do you think? I mean, do, do or do you think he was was he just wanting to get paid by everybody? Was he one of those people? Could he have been also working for the Russians? For all we know, I don't know. <laughs> Who else needs information? <laughs> I think there's an I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, he certainly was happy to take money from anyone. Mm. Uh, that, that's not a question, but um, I think there's some self-preservation here as well. You know, mm. as the U.S. And, and British relationships with Japan got worse and worse, he's um, mm. he's kind of stuck. Yeah, sort of hedging his bets a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, before we move on, Bradley, is there anything else you want to add there? No, I think you know this. This is a great conversation. Just sort of underscores the nuance of of this figure and this period of time. You know, when we ask the question of is he a spy? Is he a double agent? Is he a man who's simply putting his loyalties on the line for hire? Mm. You know, I think the fact that even today, with all of the documents that, that Ron and I have seen, we don't have 100% clarity on that just shows how complicated this case was and, and how complicated this time was. Again, you know, we have to remember that only some of these activities might have been illegal, <laughs> you know, and, and and much of this might well have been, you know, well within the bounds and rights of someone to, someone to do. Mm. Um, you know, we're not talking about countries that are at war in this period, nor are we talking about countries that are even allied. We're talking about Britain and the United States. Mm. Mm. And this is why the FBI found it very difficult to kind of build a case against him, wasn't it? And he ended up being... Did he get deported back to Britain or did he just go back to Britain and was arrested? That was a bit unclear on that. It is very unclear. Um, a, lo- a lot of this stuff being uh, embarrassing for both Britain and the US uh, still is not mm. uh, declassified. You know, the, what the FBI declassified has, you know, major big chopped out uh, sections. But uh, apparently it was certainly everyone wanted to keep this very quiet. And uh, we do know he went back to Britain as a VIP. Uh, this was in the middle of the U-boat war, and he went back on a bomber. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was apparently not a ticket you could easily get. What we believe happened was the FBI, in their notes to uh, MI5, said um, that someone hand wrote on the notes, we have enough evidence to hang this guy. Mm. And there's a note from the British MI5 people saying, we think they're, they're, they're joking here. Okay. <laughs> 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 but that's the level of... 
misunderstanding and, and lack of lack of communication. So what we believe happened is uh, two folks from the British embassy went to talk to him and said, look, this is a very untenable situation. This is very, you know, embarrassing and, and potentially damaging to British national security. We need you to go home. Now, the question is, did they lead him on a little bit? Did they say, you know, we need you at home? Because mm-hmm. he certainly showed up in Britain he had uh, he had meetings with MI5, with the air ministry, with a couple of the airline manufacturers, uh, all offering his services. Yeah, uh, and it came pretty quickly. They were not going to employ him, and he was not employable. Mm. Kind of giving him the rope to hang himself with, almost so to speak. It did seem that way. Yeah. Mm. Oh, interesting. Hey, Bradley, is there anything you want to add on on his time in Britain of this 18B charge? Yeah, well, I think what's interesting as well is we found a document actually recently declassified from the FBI indicating that in the 1960s, there was actually a an inquiry from a, a journalist about the Rutland case to which the FBI uh, conducts a brief internal inquiry as to, to what had happened with, with an eye towards trying to assess whether FBI agents had actually kidnapped Rutland. Mm. Um, and, and they sort of conclude that, that they probably didn't kidnap him. Um, but but even in the 1960s, there there wasn't clarity on what exactly had happened. So whether or not there are more documents out there that remain to be declassified on this is, is a little bit unclear, too. But uh, I, I think the fact that even the FBI didn't seem to know the answer to that question relatively near to the actual time it had taken place just indicates how complicated this was. Yeah, it, uh, we talk about the U.S. and uh, British intelligence here. The U.S. intelligence, you know, as we hinted at earlier, was not on the same page as well. So the, the U.S. had a naval intelligence group and they had the FBI and both were involved. He was apparently working for the naval intelligence. And this came, there's a bit, a little more than a little bit of a dust up between Navy and the FBI here as well. Mm, mm. So you have the Navy saying, you know, this is our guy. You have the FBI saying, we want to hang this guy. And we have the U.S. State Department saying, look, we got to just keep this quiet. We do not want a trial. We, you know, mm, so it's, mm. it's, it's, um, someone said it was like a, a zoo with people coming in from different organizations with different opinions. Mm. That does make the perfect cover, though, doesn't it? It does make it very hard to really know what to do with him, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. As, especially as in Britain, he's considered as a kind of war hero. So it's, it's like hanging a, yeah, if the Americans were to hang him, it would be <laughs> quite a, quite a possible diplomatic problem. Yeah. <laughs> so there's also a debate about Rutland's activities may have led to the justification of the internment of Japanese citizens in America and Australia. Is there anything you can tell us about that? I think I'll reject that one uh, pretty, pretty strongly. Uh, you know, obviously that was a travesty and, and, you know, mm. uh, you know, a blot on the, honor of the United States to do that. But I mean, fundamentally, this was covered up. (laughs) Like nobody really knew about it. So to use that as a justification, I mean, trust me, there was plenty of other things going on that were causing this. Bradley, what do you think? No, I think that's right. I mean, you know, that that has been discussed in some of the some of the literature. We didn't find a lot of evidence for that. We also, interestingly, didn't find a great deal of evidence that that the Rutland case was even widely discussed within the U.S. government. I mean, and that's mm. why I think we we reject that assertion, um, at least at the present time. But I think this was kept so quiet because really this was such diplomatic dynamite that they really didn't want to to discuss this even within the confines of the U.S. government. Um, mm. And if you look at the documentation surrounding Japanese internment. I mean, from the documents I've looked at, I mean, this was never really came up. I mean, there were a host of other discussions that were deeply rooted in longstanding prejudices and, and racism mm-hmm. on the West Coast and uh, other aspects of the international situation at that point in people's perceptions of them. But, mm-hmm. but I don't think the Rutland case featured heavily in people's minds. Yeah, no, fair enough. Is there any inkling that you've seen about kind of what kind of information, you know, is there any significant information he has given to the Japanese that you've got kind of like 
Um, you've seen documents that sort of are definitive about that. Was he really a good spy or is he just one of these people who who um, has just sort of, you know, he's too enigmatic to really know what damage he did? You know, there's, um, we did find some uh, Japanese diaries from the Japanese, um, mm. you know, heads of intelligence, and they don't think he was actually hugely uh, helpful. Um, there are cases where, you know, he did obviously learn quite a bit about US aircraft. Mm. We mm. had folks from Mitsubishi uh, coming over to Los Angeles to meet with him in 1939. He obviously gave them some some decent information, but uh, not a huge amount. And, um, and but uh, backing up, originally his goal or his, um, his Stated mission was to be a you know a sleeper. Oh, okay. He didn't execute to this. Uh, the idea would be that if the U.S. and Japan went to war, the Japanese spies would all obviously be gone. Mm. Uh, but having a Britain in Los Angeles, well, he could still be there. And so, obviously, being uh, deported before the war started, he didn't achieve that goal. Yeah, yeah. So he could have, he, yeah, he could have done a lot more damage then by, by, uh, by staying if he had. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. So, do you think the Japanese made an error in relying too heavily on him in the pre-war years? Do you think? I think that's a. It's definitely a fair statement. Yeah. yeah. And and they didn't have many other assets other than him. Or? At his level, no. They didn't have a huge budget. He was sucking up, a, you know, a large amount of it. I, I think it's fair to say they they do rely over, overly on on Rutland's uh, ability to gather intelligence. Again, as we've said, you know, it's tough to see what he's really giving them, but it's presumably was information that they thought was going to be of high value. But the other fascinating thing, I think, is that from the research that we've done, the Japanese have a very strange perception of the international situation when they're relying on Rutland. So the initial plan for the outbreak of war is that Rutland would decamp and head to Canada and report to a Japanese consulate there, which, of course, presupposes that if the United States and Japan are at war, then, then the British Empire and Japan are not, that you could simply, they would continue freely operating within the British Empire. So that's a misassumption, number one. And then the second assumption they pivot to is that, that Rutland should be re- reporting to Mexico, and that Mexico mm-hmm. could potentially become a safe harbor for uh, Japanese intelligence after the outbreak of war, which completely misreads the Mexican government's intentions. The idea that Mexico would would allow itself to become a safe harbor for a, a country at war with the U.S. is an interesting mm-hmm. misreading, and, and perhaps one based upon another famous episode in intelligence history, which is the Zimmerman Note in the First World War. Of course, this idea that perhaps Japan could enter uh, the First World War on the on the side of the Central Powers, and so it almost seems that Japan is is mis has a very well, Japanese intelligence, we should say, is a very interesting perception of what the outbreak of war might look like, none of which actually comes true. So it's kind of interesting to imagine how all of their assumptions essentially fall apart. Rutland's removed from the scene, the British Empire and Japan are at war, Mexico essentially sides with the United States um, rather than allow Axis powers to obtain a foothold there. Um, essentially, all of these plans by the Japanese Naval Intelligence Corps fall apart. Yeah, I think that's uh, maybe perhaps the biggest legacy which is, um, was not his presence, but his removal. So, you know, as we know, Pearl Harbor happened, uh, at, at which, you know, which was obviously the, you know, a, a big intelligence success for the Japanese, but it was probably their last one. Okay, so mm-hmm. <laughs> after Pearl Harbor, they needed to know what's going on on the West Coast, how many ships are being shipped out, how many troops are being shipped out, what are the capabilities of new airplanes, all these things. And they're essentially blind because their assets are no longer in place. And uh, there's some interesting stories about a Spanish consulate doing work for the Japanese and going around. And, um, you know, there's the famous uh, movie For Whom the Bell Tolls, set in Spain. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that was filmed in 1942. And then the Spanish uh, government sent people to observe 
the filming to, for its historical accuracy. But they were also going around the docks and checking out the U.S. Navy and reporting, you know, through their embassy back to the Japanese, which is, you know, I suppose was a lovely thing, but it wasn't really a meaningful amount of intelligence for the Japanese there. Yeah. Well, what is um, Rutland's sort of legacy today? And, and what's the reaction been to kind of your research about him? I would say probably the biggest thing is it may be reopening some of the um, 18B mm. discussions and, you know, especially with the war on terror. And, and what, what do you think, Bradley? Yeah, you know, I think I think there's a couple important legacies here. Ron is absolutely right to say that Rutland's failure, I think, is his greatest personal legacy. The fact that he, mm. he apparently made no efforts to put together an actual durable network of agents uh, mm-hmm. relied very uh, closely on his personal relationships with people, um, never really disseminated the money that he obtained from the Japanese to, to buy up information in any effective way. Um, you know, when he's removed from the scene, the, from our research, the Japanese appear to be mostly blind on the West Coast. They still have some agents in place, but after the outbreak of war, uh, they really have almost nothing left. And so so that sort of misjudgment, I would say, is is Rutland's largest personal legacy. I think the, the importance of this research is, is it's important for a couple of ways. I think Ron is right that the 18B material on the British side is, is really fascinating. And, and for listeners who may not know, this was the British government's program of detention without trial for people who were deemed uh, serious national security risks. So initially, this included people like Oswald Mosley, um, Admiral Barry Domville, another, another Navy man who falls into fascist sympathies in the 1930s, a fascinating figure, um, could do a whole episode on him too. Um, but, you know, people who were involved with the British Union of Fascists or um, people who had, had spent extensive time in Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. But then it actually expands out, um, especially after Pearl Harbor, to include people uh, who are seen taking photos down at the docks in certain parts of mm-hmm. London uh, or people like Rutland who are deported by other governments, potentially, who it's a little bit less clear what the threat they pose might be. Um, and MI5 has done a fairly good job of opening those files at, at the National Archives in Kew, but, but there's still a great deal there. I mean, on an annual basis, they, they release files that, that no one's ever seen before. So I think that we're still yet to have a full accounting of, of what went on with 18B. Uh, Rutland's 18B file assembly is, is open, entirely open as far as we can tell. Um, and it's voluminous. I mean, they interrogated Rutland many, many times. The entire transcripts are there. Um, and, you know, the ATB interrogations are interesting because they're, they're obviously trying to, in some ways, entrap these people into, into mm. admitting that they are agents or are planning some sort of um, nefarious act. Uh, but in other cases, they're trying to, to ascertain who these people know. And so repeatedly with Rutland, they're asking, you know, do you know this person? Do you know uh, what, what did you do? We, we know you met this person in 1934. What did you talk about? And some case, Rutland says, I don't remember. Right. So, yeah, yeah. you know, I think there, there's important research to be done on, on that aspect as well. But I think the third point is, you know, there, there's actually not a lot written on Japanese intelligence during the Second World War. There's quite a lot written on the efforts to break the Japanese codes. Um, there's a great deal written on sort of military intelligence, but there's not a lot written on on sort of the espionage aspect of this in the interwar period. Um, and I suspect, I mean, we we know from our from our research that the Japanese tried to cultivate agents in in Britain as well, uh, with limited success. I mean, often the people that they tried to bring in were were either alcoholics or um, people who were were not not great with money, who simply simply blew it and didn't provide much useful intelligence. So. I think what, what really the the long term project for someone here, I mean, maybe it's us, maybe it's someone else, is to look at, at all access intelligence gathering in this period and figure out just how deep a lot of this went. Because we know that from my own research, the Germans 
seem to be much more effective at this. I mean, the Germans actually did have some great intelligence successes in this period, and it, it seems that the Japanese had much more limited ones. So interesting to, to find out whether that's an accurate perception, whether there's more documents out there, or or whether historians just haven't had access until until now or maybe even the future to really get a, a clear picture of all this. Mm, thank you. Ron, is there anything else you'd like to add? I think, uh, you know, if you look at what was happening in Los Angeles at the time, you know, you've got uh, the espionage uh, and you've also got the propaganda efforts. You know, it's mm. pretty well known that uh, Hollywood uh, didn't touch, you know, anything bad about Hitler you know, until well into the late 30s, right? And you also had the Soviets running around stealing information. You know, obviously the, they stole the A-bomb uh, secrets, but not just that. I think these Los Angeles-based aircraft factories just had a, you know, profusion of agents trying to sneak in there under, you know, whatever pretenses they could. And it's not well known, you know, as Bradley was saying, the, the German is the most well-documented or written yeah. about. What happened to Rutland in the end after World War II? Well, he was uh, he was finally released very late, you know, as Bradley was saying, one of the last people to really be released under 18B, uh, even after these very prominent fascists. And soon after the war, um, you know, his son uh, referred to him as being a very angry and bitter man. Yeah. He was very bitter that, uh, you know, he's like, if they had listened to me, Pearl Harbor could have been prevented. <laughs> you know, if MI5 had listened to me, I could have helped Britain. He, he's a very bitter man. And um, he, he killed himself. Yeah. He, uh, he left a yeah he left a very heartrending suicide note to his son, and um, you know uh, inhaled gas in his apartment. In, uh, and what year was that? What year was the three that? years after the war ended. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Does that does that suicide note make you think that maybe he was genuinely trying to help Britain, or is it just again a survival thing? I don't know. It's an interesting one. That one. It's certainly murky. Uh, I think it, he was a kind of a crazy egomaniac, mm. um, and crazy egomaniacs can actually believe their own uh, propaganda. Mm. Mm, mm, yeah, indeed. Warning to us all. <laughs> Excellent. Well, before we wrap up, are there any sort of final things you'd like to add that um, that are important to you or that we may have missed? Uh, I was thinking, um, you know, uh, Bradley's looked into some of the other uh, British assets that the Japanese had mm. uh, recruited, mm. and they include uh, quite a number of VIPs. Uh, one of uh, one of Graham Greene's siblings was also recruited oh, yes yes i saw yes oh my goodness which is interesting one that one because it, it made me think a bit about graham green a little bit because of uh his friendship with kim philby and stuff but i don't know it all gets murkier that doesn't it but, uh, but there we go <laughs> any other figures that popped out at all the other one that pops up in this um in this uh, uh story is another britain uh, charlie chaplin ah mm. oh, okay yeah yeah one of rutland's um uh, associates in the espionage was a Japanese fellow that was uh, Chaplin's butler for a long time. And uh, I think there's more to be studied on Chaplin's role. And, you know, we, we all know that Chaplin was deported from the US, his passport was taken away. Mm. Um, he liked young girls, uh, and he was a communist. And, and just where that all lies is, is uh, definitely worthy of further research. It's interesting on that one, is it? Because he was very anti-Hitler, wasn't he? So in that time, to get a butler to spy on you, he, somebody must have thought he was worth it. That's quite interesting. Yep. Yeah, Bradley, is there anything else you wanted to add there? You know, after finishing this project, I was sort of thinking about Graham Greene as well, uh, but in a slightly different way. I was thinking about Graham Greene's Our Man in Havana. Uh, which is a great yeah. satirical novel if, if listeners haven't read it. But I sort of pictured Rutland as, as our man in Havana uh, for the Japanese. Mm. I mean, it, the plot of that book is that you have a, a spy, a British spy in this case, who wants to find useful information to sell back to his handlers in London. So he starts, he's a, he's a um, vacuum cleaner salesman. So he starts sketching 
vacuum cleaner parts as uh, sort of missiles or missile uh, parts <laughs> and gives yeah. us back to uh, presumably MI6 and they sort of think, you know, perhaps this looks like a vacuum cleaner, but the internal bureaucracy wants him to be such a valuable agent. They continue to to officially believe him and send him more and more resources. And so I think it, it's interesting, you know, whether Graham Greene himself was aware of the Rutland case and somehow based it on, on that. Um, Graham Greene, of course, was in MI6 during the war. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's an interesting sort of parallel there, if inadvertently. But, you know, I think this is an, a, a, an important area of research. I think there's much more to be discovered here. You know, since, since the onset of the pandemic, we have seen more and more archival material being digitized, which is essential for historians. And we've seen a great deal of, of material being declassified. I mean, some of the material we used for this article and for this research was only declassified when we applied for it to be declassified. And, and Ron has done a really great job at working with various government agencies to get this material opened up. But but there's a lot more out there. I mean, this is why I love studying um, 20th century history, especially 20th century intelligence history, because literally no one has been able to tell these stories until now. So uh, for all the listeners out there, stay tuned. There's a, There's a lot more to come. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, both of you. Where can listeners sort of find out more about your research and what you guys are working on and how can they connect with you? We have published a, uh, you know, an academic paper on this, which, um, mm. you know, we think is uh, relatively readable <laughs> <laughs> for an academic paper called uh, Agent Shinkawa. And, and we have some uh, some new um, new information that coming out soon. Um, oh, fantastic. There will be a book at some point. Yeah, actually, for an academic paper, it's quite a smooth read. I've read a few academic papers uh, on intelligence that are nowhere near as uh, enjoyable as that one was. So, <laughs> <laughs> Bradley, uh, where can listeners sort of connect with you and keep uh, an eye out for future projects and stuff? Yeah, I'll also mention the academic paper is actually open access, so available for anyone to read. It's not not paywalled. Um, mm. So I encourage everyone to check it out. Um, as Ron said, its its main title is Agent Shinkawa, which was the code name for Rutland. Uh, but I can always be reached to my university website. Uh, I also have my my author website, which is, is bradleywhart.com. I certainly encourage any listeners to, to reach out. A few, a number of listeners reached out after the last time I was on the show. So yeah. would love to hear oh, from good. anyone who's interested in this good. topic or, or might have anything to offer on it. And uh, yeah, as Ron said, uh, keep keep an eye out. There's, there's a lot more to come. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for both of you for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies, 